If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Isaiah 41. As you do, uh, two thoughts. One, I was just struck by how thankful I am that we take lots of time to pray in our service. If we're honest, sometimes it's easy to zone out or easy to get a little tired in those moments, but um, prayer is at the heart of who we are as followers of Christ. So I'm just thankful for that today. And also uh, thankful for Joshua and Jake preaching the past couple weeks. So thank you, brothers, for handling the word well and ministering to us and allowing me to go to some conferences and really engage well without the pressure of preaching the next Sunday. So thank you, guys. And obviously we're back in Isaiah, Isaiah 41. Let's remember uh, where we've been in this book and where we are now. The focus of the first half of Isaiah was on the reign of King Ahaz in Jerusalem, followed by that of King Hezekiah. Those are kind of the two main kings that we were looking at. Uh, they were two very different kings. Ahaz is described by the author of the book of Kings as doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and Hezekiah is said to be one who did what was right. And yet they both struggled in their own way with trusting the Lord. You remember that the, the final words of Isaiah 39 reveal that their lack of trust and their sin, as well as the sins and the faithlessness of Judah, would eventually lead them to exile at the hands of the Babylonians, and the judgment of God was coming. It seems that nothing could stop its arrival. When I was a senior in high school, I went whitewater rafting in West Virginia. And it's amazing to me how clear some of those memories of just that one specific day were. It must have been a very thrilling experience for me. Uh, I remember at one point, though, that um, they had us get out of this raft that we were in and float down the river, held up only by our life jackets. Now, obviously, this was, not, this was in a, a section of the river where the, the rapids were not as, as strong. But even so, it helped you understand the, the strength of the river's current and how helpless you would be to fight against it, especially if you were caught in those stronger rapids. In light of the predictions of Babylonian exile, Judah may have felt caught in the strong current of the river of history caught in, in a way that, that they couldn't stop it, floating, as it were, with no boat, helpless to do anything but be thrown over the roaring waterfall at the end. And not just Judah, but all the nations around Israel also felt the seemingly inevitable destruction that the Babylonians would bring. Barry Webb imagines that they felt themselves to be utterly powerless, like driftwood at sea, at the mercy of forces totally beyond their control. Our own stories can feel similar, whether we are considering the course of history at large or just the unfolding history of our own individual lives. The, the forces around us and even within us sometimes feel beyond our ability to influence or to, to fight against. We're, we're caught in the current of events and the rapids of everyday life, unable to do anything but be swept along with them. The future is uncertain and scary and we can do nothing to stop its coming. The days are swift, and they're really hard to control. We might respond to this reality in a few different ways. Maybe some of us respond with fearful uncertainty. Fearful uncertainty, we're filled with fear and maybe even a little bit of anger 
at the way that the world and our lives are going, sensing that we can do nothing about it all. Fear often arises when we feel like we don't have control or we've lost control. And our lives and the world itself sometimes feel very much out of our control. This fearful uncertainty uncertainty could lead to another response, namely passive resignation. (laughs) We passively resign. We, We could call this fatalism in a word. We're caught in this current, and rather than be filled with fear or anger, we just sort of climb into a yellow inner tube and treat life like a lazy river at the water park. In our hearts, we are shielding ourselves from from pain and frustration by saying, you know, whatever will be, will be. So just kind of accept the path of history and that the path that our lives are taking, you can't stop it, just enjoy the ride. Others, though, would have the opposite response. We might call it not passive resignation, but passionate resistance. Uh, caught in the, the current of life, we decide that we're not taking this line down. We, we get out of that inner tube. We, d- we are determined to, to swim against the current or maybe even build a dam and try to change the course of the flow of history. I imagine we've all found ourselves filled with fearful uncertainty about the future. And to one degree or another, we have all felt the pull towards either passive resignation or passionate resistance. And at their root, I think both both resignation and resistance can be right responses. We can see in them shades of of faith and shades of godly ambition. And what transforms them from reactions of doubt or reactions of pride into acts of faith are the reality of who God is and, and who he has called us to be. And so today, as we sort of feel the current of life pulling us, God's word here in Isaiah 41 says something to us. This is what it says. It says, as servants of the God who shapes history, we can confidently rest and work without fear. As servants of the God who shapes history, imagine that. As servants of the God who shapes history, we can confidently rest and work without fear. These words of Isaiah 41 continue the message of comfort to God's people that was begun back in chapter 40, verse 1. The focus, if you remember, in chapter 40 was on the immeasurable and incomparable strength and care of God, the Creator. And now here in chapter 41, we move from seeing God's creative power to seeing His sovereign rule, to realizing that He is orchestrating all of the events of history that he is in control of the current of history, able to slow it and turn it however he pleases, that he is the God we have been redeemed by and called to follow. We need not be filled with fearful uncertainty about the course of history or of our lives, nor do we need to respond with, with faithless passive resignation or untrusting passionate resistance. Rather, as servants of the God who shapes history, we confidently rest and work without fear. As we approach this chapter, seeing the the structure of this chapter, I think is key. Uh, The beginning and the end focus on a trial of the nations with an encouragement to the people of God in the middle. We see how we might be tempted to act like those who, who know nothing of our loving Heavenly Father, and we're encouraged to live in the truth of who we are as those who have been chosen and redeemed by God through Christ. I want to read this whole chapter, 
Uh, and as we do, see if you can feel the two tones of this passage, the, the uncertain and even fearful tone that marks the beginning and the end of the, pass- of the chapter, and then the encouraging and, call- and sort of fearless tone that's found in the, the middle section. So look with me at Isaiah 41, and let's hear these wonderful words from the scriptures. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let, then let them speak. Let us draw, to get, draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One one of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. 
I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's begin as we think about this, this idea as servants of the God who shapes history, we can confidently rest and work without fear. Two main ideas, the, there are two main points, I guess I would say. The first is from verses 1 through 7, and then also from 21 through 29, these bookends of the passage. And it's this truth, our God sovereignly orchestrates history. Our God sovereignly orchestrates history. You'll notice in verse 1 that God is speaking to the coastlands in both of these sections, which refers to the nations surrounding Israel. He is putting the Gentile nations on trial, asking for evidence from them in verses 21 through 29. Uh, Barry Webb again says of verse 1 that Isaiah invites his hearers to imagine God summoning the nations before him to prove, prove what? Prove if they can that they are the ones who shape history. He wants them to prove that that they are the ones who shape history. God wants to know if they are in control as they seem to think that they are. They are to come before him in silence and answer the questions of verses two through four, though God answers those questions for them. In verse two, God speaks of a ruler from the east who would come and easily defeat his enemies. We find later in Isaiah that this is Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would defeat Babylon some 200 years later and end up sending Judah out of exile and back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. And the Lord's question in verse 2 is, who stirred him up? And in verse 4, who has performed and done this? Was Cyrus independent in his actions? Or was he strengthened by one of the gods of the nations? The answer to both questions is no. Because the Lord alone sovereignly orchestrates history. He, verse 4, is the first and he is with the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as we read in Revelation. He is the originator of history. He is the enactor of history. And he is the one who will stand at the end of history. Our God is the conductor of the orchestra of world events. And he's the author of the symphony of time. He has written on the score all that will happen. And you can see him as a conductor. With the flick of his wrist, he changes the tempo or he adds a new melody in. Do kings and presidents and dictators and nations really think that they are in control? Do billionaires and CEOs imagine that their money or that their companies actually shape history? Do we ourselves believe the words of the poem, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul? If we do believe that, then we will respond as the nations do in verses five through seven. They see God's power and they are afraid. And there's a sense in which the Lord wants us to be filled with fear. He wants us to see that the river of history is filled with rocks and rapids. And if we are found to be swept down it with nothing but our own resources, we are going to be crushed. 
pandemics and division and wars and financial crises are hard to navigate, not to mention just the trials of everyday living, and to think that they are random or controlled by fickle forces is frightening. But when we know that there is a God who sovereignly orchestrates all of these things, we should fear him. We should revere and respect him. This fear of God could have led to faith for the nations, yet given the opportunity to turn and trust the Lord, they instead turn to one another and they turn to idols. They trust themselves and their collective efforts and they trust the gods that they make with their own hands. In verse six, you see that the nations are encouraging one another to be strong, to stand together in the hope that they can rise above history if they would work together. On Wednesday, our president closed his speech to Congress with these words. He said, it's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We are the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our mind to if we do it together. So let's begin to get together. Now there's truth in the fact that we need to work together to accomplish things in our nation and that cooperation has led to great gains throughout history. But the idea that America, if united, can do anything we set our minds to is just not true because America doesn't shape history, God does. And only when we're working in line with his will and his purposes as his people will our efforts find any success. Now, that kind of humanistic, optim humanistic optimism is not a President Biden or a Democrat thing. That's a, the same hubris that we hear on both sides of the aisle of any political debate. We hear it from nations, we hear it from world leaders, we hear it on television, we see it on Facebook. We hear it in verse six of this chapter, but again, it's really nothing new. Its roots are actually all the way back to Babel when the people banded together, and do you remember what they said? Let us make a name for ourselves. We imagine that the problem in the world is outside of us, and it's in us or in the unity of people that we find the solution, when in actuality, the problem of the world is us, and the solution has to come from outside of us, from the one who shapes history. From looking internally, they, they together then, instead of looking internally at themselves, they start to look to their idols in verse seven. It's almost comical. They, they encourage one another as they build some new idol, reassuring one another along the way that maybe this one with its superb soldering or its, its really strong nails, maybe this one's gonna save us. But God has some questions for those idols. They, they come to fruition in verses 21 through 24. He asks these idols for evidence of their power. He wants them to predict a future event and have it come true. In verse 23, he simply wants them to do something, anything, good, bad, or otherwise. But they can't. Because as he says in verse 24, they are nothing, and the work they can do is less than nothing. And those who choose to trust in, the, trust in these idols are detestable. They are an abomination. There were a lot of people in town yesterday who convinced themselves that they could pre predict a future event, <laughs> that they had figured out who was going to win the 147th Kentucky Derby. There was one man who was nearly two and a half million dollars sure, and he was dead wrong. And while we might get lucky every once in a while in determining some future event, let's, let's reckon with the fact that none of us, none of us shapes history or knows history or can predict the future like our God. 
This is clear in verses 25 through 29, where we again see that it's the Lord who stirs up Cyrus and predicts his coming conquest. Isaiah, writing some 200 years before it happened, predicts by the inspiration of God's spirit what God would do through Cyrus. God alone knew this. God alone knew that Cyrus would conquer Babylon, and God knew that he would use Cyrus to bring the good news of restoration to the people of God and send them back to Jerusalem. Friends, as as you watch and you feel that the current of history and the current of just your everyday life swirling around you, remember our God sovereignly orchestrates history. He stirs up rulers and nations and he uses them as instruments in his hand. He predicts and he brings to pass all of his plans. He is the first and he is with the last. All of the sources of hope, says verse 29, are a delusion. Their works are nothing. If you're trusting in anything else, Isaiah says you are trusting in empty wind. So seeing all that God is, we now turn to this middle section of the chapter so that we can pause and say something to ourselves. It was in the call to worship from Psalm 63 this morning. This is the second main main point from verses eight through 20. It's this, oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. I, I, I don't, this is who God is. And, and verses eight through 20 cause us to say, this is not just who God is, but this is who God is to me. He is my God. Verse eight begins with these words, but you. So the transition is from speaking to the nations now to, to speaking to God's people, Israel. And, and Isaiah sets them apart from the coastlands and the nations. They're different because of what God has done for them and who he has made them. The promises and the truths of this section therefore apply to those who God, whose, whose God is the Lord. And for we who are not ethnically Jewish, who are the coastlands and the nations, God can be our God in the ways described here only through faith in Christ. First Peter 2.10 reminds us that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And this is possible because of the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Through faith in that work, all of God's promises are yes in Christ. So we can look at verses eight and nine and say that we too are servants of God, chosen by him and his friends. You see those? Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Romans 6.22 tells us that we are free from sin and now we are servants of God. As Israel was chosen from among the nations, so too we have been chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world to be a people that are holy and blameless. And as God called Abraham his friend, so too Jesus says to all of his disciples, I call you friends. Like verse 9, he has called us as a people from the ends of the earth. Remember this, the, the nations in the face of the current of history looked where? They looked to one another and they looked to their idols instead of trusting the Lord. But if we are children of God through faith in Jesus, then the solution to navigating the currents of life and history is not to look to one another or even within ourselves, but to look to God and to behold God. And then to see what God has done for us and therefore who we are in him. So what do we find here? If I have to outline it rather than just let us soak in it, which I would encourage you to do, you don't have to outline uh, these words. You could just revel in them. But let's outline them, I guess, so we can follow some train of thought. 
If I have to outline them, we'll say this. God helps us, God works through us, and God meets all our needs. So first eight, verses 8 through 13, God, our God helps us. Uh, other than don't fear, I think this idea of helping is key in this section. Our God helps us. As his chosen servants and friends were told in verse, verses 10 through 13 to fear not. Unlike the nations that are scrambling for cover in fear of the God who shapes history, we don't need to fear because God is with us and his nearness to us is not frightening. It is our good. Joshua, in our scripture reading today, was told not to fear to lead the people into Canaan. Don't be afraid. Why? Well, not because of his strength, not because of the strength of Israel's army, but because God was with him to strengthen him. And the same is true for us. God is with us. He upholds us. His spirit lives within us. Therefore, verses 11 through 12, our enemies cannot finally triumph over us. We walk through the most frightening moments of life in the shadows of the greatest enemies, and we don't have to fear anything. Why? Because verse 13, God holds our hand like the best of fathers among us. What a beautiful picture. He holds our hand. And he whispers in our ear, don't be afraid. I am the one who helps you. Not only does he help us though, verses 14 through 16, it tells us that our God works through us. Our God works through us. And verse 14, God's people are, are called what? Did you notice it? Verse 14, fear not, you worm. <laughs> Does that stand out to you? God calls his people a worm. We're reminded that our hope is in God and apart from God, we are nothing. But if he desires to use us, then he can do amazing things. Think about this, that the God who shapes and orchestrates history chooses to use worms like us to accomplish his purposes. We may not be used in the ways that we expect. They may not be glamorous or flashy like we want them to be, but to be used by him at all is a gift of his grace. Specifically here, if you read on, the worm becomes a threshing sledge. <laughs> Quite the transformation, isn't it? From a worm to a threshing sledge. This was an instrument used to separate the grain from the chaff. It was a violent instrument. And it indicates judgment. And of course, the threshing sledge only has power when it's in the hands of the one using it. So too, God works through us. He uses us for his purposes, whatever they might be, for his glory. What a wonderful gift. We know that the disciples of Jesus will one day judge the nations, but even now we are a threshing sledge. Even now we judge people in a sense. How? Through our proclamation of the gospel. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16. He says that with the gospel on our lips, we are the stench of death to some, and we are the smell of life to others. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares will be divided on the last day. But even now, as we announce that life is found only in Jesus, in doing so, we are judging the nations. We are instruments of judgment and ministers of life in the hands of God when we proclaim the gospel. What a weighty and powerful privilege. Our God helps us. Our God works through us. And finally, our God meets all our needs. Our God meets all our needs. This is in verses 17 through 20. Uh, there's echoes of the Exodus in here. 
Uh, We might remember the wilderness wanderings, which were no accident, but designed by God, orchestrated by him. Why? To build Israel's trust in him. And where he led them, he met them. He provided for them. He satisfied their thirst and brought fruitfulness in the desert. And in leading them to a place of need and then providing for them, he made it clear, verse 20, that his hand had done it all. Why did he do this? That they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Well, there's a lot more in verses 8 through 20, and I would invite you to reread this section and announce to your heart over and over again as you see it. Say, oh God, you are my God. This is who you are to me. I think that'd be a great way to pray through that passage. But for now, let me ask this question. What happens when you connect the reality that our God sovereignly orchestrates history with this heart cry, oh God, you are my God? What happens when you see God as the sovereign ruler of time and as your friend who has chosen you to be his servant? The text is clear, right? Fear flees. No more fear. If God is sovereign over all and he is with us, we have nothing left to fear. If the God who orchestrates history is the one who holds my hand, the God who has chosen me and made me his friend, the God who helps me and meets all my needs, then whatever happens in the world at large, whatever happens in my personal life, doesn't need to fill me with fear or anxiety or doubt. Name in your heart the thing that fills you with fear. Think about the daily difficulty or the grand movement of history that just makes you a little queasy or the thing that makes you outright terrified. Hold it in your mind. Here's the truth. God has ordained it. He orchestrated it. And the same God who ordained it and orchestrated will be with you as you walk through it. Now, I can't promise you that you have perfect freedom at this moment, but there is this sense that rather than fearfully careening through the rapids of history with nothing to keep us afloat, if we believe that, if we can connect those truths of who God is and that that's who he is to us, then we're suddenly not floating as I did in a life jacket down rapids. Rather, we're put into a sturdy raft with an expert guide who not only knows the river, but actually he controls the river. And he does something that no river guide would ever do, (laughs) at least the ones I've met. He holds our hand the whole way, and he's with us. And so we rest in him. We rest in who he is and who he is to us. And here's the other beautiful beautiful thing. We work for him. We, we do what he calls us to do, not in our own strength, not trying to change history to fit our purposes, not fighting against God's, sovereign's plan, God's sovereign plan, but allowing us, him to use us in the course of history, however he chooses for his glory. We can see that we are worms, but we are worms that God wields to judge the nations. He may call you to do some great work that the history books will write about. I don't know.
But for most of us, he's just going to call us to be faithful in small things till the day we die. And either way, he's using us. Whatever God does, whether it's written down or forgotten forever, you can know that it won't, well, it won't be forgotten forever. <laughs> whatever that happens, though, if it's forgotten by this world, it will be remembered by God. And whatever your role in history is, you are being used as a child of God by the one who shapes history. You could never do that on your own. <laughs> if you tried to shape history on your own, you would fail miserably. But in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are changing the course of human history. Why? Because he is using us to shape history. And he's turning all things for his glory. God is the sovereign orchestrator of history. And he is the God who holds your hand, who holds my hand. He is your God. Therefore, as servants of the God who shapes history, what can we do? <laughs> we can confidently rest and we can work without any fear. Now, as we come to the Lord's Supper today, take the cross of Jesus and put it on Isaiah 41. And let's make a few connections, okay? If we do that, we start to see that Jesus' trial and his death were no accident. He was delivered into the hands of his murderers by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We can see Jesus as one who confidently rested in his father's plan and confidently worked to see his father glorified all the way to the point of death on the cross. We see in Jesus that God has come to help us when we were helplessly lost in the rapids of sin, doomed to destruction. We see in Jesus that God meets all of our needs including the deepest need that we have, the need of forgiveness of our sins. And so what do we do? We commit ourselves to let God work through us, knowing that if God can use the death of his son to bring life to everyone who believes, then he can use anything that comes into our lives for his glory and for our good.